Hebrews is a tough book, particularly chapters 5, 6, and 7. They all talk about one concept that I trust is probably not altogether familiar to you. It's this concept that Jesus is our great high priest, which mercy. We don't have much of a connection there. And then what makes it all the more difficult is chapter 7 is basically answering two questions you're not asking. One question that chapter 7 asks is, how can Jesus actually be our high priest if he did not come from the tribe of Levi? Which if you know your Bible, you'll know that priests only came from the tribe of Levi, but Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. How could he possibly be one of those priests? I know you weren't asking that, but it matters. And the author answers, and this was last week, he doesn't come from the line of Levi. He comes from a different line, this enigmatic line, this line called the line of Melchizedek, which we discussed that last week. I'm not going to belabor that point. That's the first question. The, the second question, which is appropriate for today, is it also asks this question that you're probably not asking, and that's this. If we can't trust the Levites to be our priests before God, if we can't trust the Levite priests to be the people that make intercession between us and God, how can we trust Jesus? If the Levites failed, can't he fail too? And the writer of Hebrews answers that question, which is actually more relevant to you than you may realize. And so if you found Hebrews 7, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word. I'll begin in verse 20 and read down through verse 28 to conclude this chapter. Hear now his argument, his defense, as to why Jesus is the priest you need and Jesus is the priest that will never fail. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You see, this promise makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, the former priests, well, they were many in number. And the reason they were is because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, all men die. But in verse 24, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. He continues forever. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, who's exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like all those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people. Jesus didn't have to do that because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, this promise God made, which came later than the law, it appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Why don't you join me now as we pray? Let's ask God to help us. Father in heaven, you know how unable I feel this moment to do this text justice. There are many barriers between we today and the background of this text, and I don't feel to the task to make it plain, and so I'm asking that your spirit would come and do what I cannot, and that's open deaf ears, open blind eyes, soften hardened hearts. Oh God, would you give us that grace, ears to hear, 
eyes to see, and a heart to understand your word. Overcome barriers of indifference, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, your greatest problem this day is probably not what you think. Two months ago, I had the privilege to be the speaker for our student discipleship weekend, which we call CLT weekend, and that was the first statement out of my mouth. It's evidently a statement that resonated for two months later. I'm still hearing teenagers in this church come up to me telling me, happened today, that they have been haunted by this idea that your greatest problem this moment is not what you think. It's, it's not, in truth, your personal problems. It's not your wayward child, your, your crumbling marriage. Your greatest problem this moment is not your health or your lack of wealth. It's not even global problems. Great problems like war, poverty, pandemics, plagues. Your greatest problem, according to the revelation of God, is God Himself. Your greatest problem this moment is God. For He is holy. He is an all-consuming fire, the Bible says. Once I once heard a man remark that it would be safer for you and I to walk on the surface of the sun than to stand before the unquenchable fire of God's holiness. God is a holy God. He cannot stand sinners to be in His presence. This is not hellfire and brimstone. This is straight Bible, my friends. This is what the Word teaches, which means your greatest need this moment is probably not what you think. Perhaps your great problems in your life have led you to conclude that what you need more than anything else this day is you just need more power. Maybe you need more property, more prestige, more position, more privilege. You maybe feel like you just need more prosperity. Or you're thinking, if only we had a better president. If only we had a better prince, a better prime minister, a better potentate. And what God has to say to you this day is none of those things are your greatest need. You don't need a president. You don't need a prince or prime minister. What you need this day is a priest. Which ought to strike you funny, particularly any of you gathered here who have a background in, let's say, Roman Catholicism, Judaism, maybe Hinduism or Buddhism. For the concept of priest feels awfully un-Protestant. We don't have priests. We have pastors. We don't have men that stand between us and God. There's the priesthood of the believer. We all can go to our good God. And my friends, I want you to see that you desperately need a priest. Your greatest need this moment is what the Bible calls a great high priest. And if you, don't, if you think I'm overstating this, or this is just some little narrow band in Hebrews, I want you to see this is really a motif of the entire Bible, that you need something you probably never thought you needed. That you desperately this moment need a great high priest more than anything else this world has to offer. Just consider with me the narrative of the Bible. The Bible began with a holy God making mankind that rebelled against him. And do you recall what happened immediately after Adam and Eve sinned? They were separated from God. And what was the great imagery of separation? They were booted out of the Garden of Eden and a cherubim 
with a flaming sword. An angel stood between we sinners and a holy God. The first hint that we have been separated. The rest of the Bible is a picture. All these illustrations, the whole Old Testament is one big illustration that God is holy and we are not and we are separated from him. For example... You see, initially, God gives a law to his people. He gives all these great rules, which seem crazy to us today, but they served a point. All the laws God gave in Exodus, which we see repeated in Leviticus and Numbers in Deuteronomy, all those laws exist to show that God is so holy we cannot come to Him. We cannot stand in His presence. Do you recall Moses on Mount Sinai when he received the law? He almost died. His face was glowing like he was radioactive. He came down and gave that law. He, does, he built a temple and nobody could enter the temple but the priests. And nobody could come to the center of the temple or the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's very presence was. No man, woman, or child could come in there but one man once a year. He was called the High Priest. And it was such a scary moment for him that they eventually started tying a rope to his leg so that when he entered the Holy of Holies, if he did so unworthily and died, they could take the rope and pull him out and not die themselves. My friends, the Bible is one great illustration that your greatest problem this moment is not what you think. Your greatest need this day is not what you think. You desperately need a priest that is better than any of the priests this world has to offer. Remember... That's not the only narrative of the Bible. One great theme of the Bible, which makes a watching world scratch their head, is the theme of blood. For God instituted not just a tabernacle. Why did the priests exist? They existed to bring blood before God. Why so bloody? Because blood from the very beginning was God's sign that he would forgive sins. Recall what happened after Adam and Eve sinned. God slew an animal, so to speak. It says that he clothed Adam and Eve for the first time with the skins of an animal. And then you see beginning, not long thereafter, the sacrificial system. We know this because Cain brought the fruit of his labor, all of his, well, it was fruit. What does Abel bring? A sacrifice of blood. Who did God have regard for? Abel and the work of his hands, or, or forgive me, Cain and the work of his hands, or Abel and the work of grace. It was Abel and that bloody sacrifice. Blood is the symbol of the Bible. It is all throughout. But the Bible makes clear that we cannot come and make a sacrifice on our own. We cannot come and just slay an animal on our own. We cannot just kill an animal in the Old Testament and think God will forgive us. We need somebody to stand between us and a holy God. We need a mediator. We need what the Bible and many religions call a priest to stand between us. And the seventh chapter of Hebrews is using this archaic imagery to drive home a point to your heart and mind this Lord's day. And here it is. Brothers and sisters, I know no easier, plainer way to say it than simply this. Jesus Christ is your greatest need. He is your greatest need this moment. For he is in truth, your great high priest. Now, I just want you to ponder with me a moment what's going on in verses 20 through 28. There's an argument that he punctuates. For all the Jews, he's basically saying the original audience that would have originally gotten Hebrews. He's saying, you guys need to recognize that Jesus is better than all the priests you've ever wanted. 
He's the priest you need. And what he's saying to you and I who don't interact with priests anymore is he is grabbing us by the collar and saying, Oh, Hickory Grove, children whom I love, would you hear me? Jesus Christ, my son, he is the priest you never knew you needed. I want to show you today three reasons why you and I need Jesus. Firstly, if you're taking notes, mark this down. I want you to see that Jesus promises what none can. He promises something that no other priest, no other man, no other religion has ever been able to promise. Now just consider with me. We all live in this society in a surround sound symphony of gospels. Just turn on the television and you're going to have somebody try to cry out to you that there is good news that they got for you. Just consider the so-called gospel of secularism. It basically is teaching a new generation, science will save you. If you just give yourself to this rational inquiry, you will seek the salvation, you will find, I should say, the salvation you seek. Oh, just give yourself to secularism. Or consider the so-called gospel of humanism, which is a technical way to say all the world thoughts, all the opinions, all the philosophies that basically say you can save yourself. You don't need somebody else to save you. You can make your own life what you want. You are the captain of your soul. You are the master of your fate. Or consider the so-called gospel that so many are hearing today of relativism, which basically says, well, anything goes. I mean, there's your flavor. That works for you. Hey, if, it feel, if you feel like you're getting saved by that, more power to you. But if that absolutely contradictory so-called gospel is good for you, well, hey, who am I to judge? Good for you. And I want you to see in this book that Jesus' words cut through that noise, cuts through the symphony. It is a note that goes over all the others. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. All these so-called gospels that have all these promises, all these lies to you, I want you to see the gospel, unlike all gospels in the world, the gospel of Jesus, it alone can guarantee you something. All these other gospels promise they have no means, no way to guarantee. But my gospel, Jesus says, it guarantees. Just look, if you will, at verse 20. He's talking about all these priests, and he says, here, let me tell you the difference between Jesus and all these other priests. All these other priests, I never promised that they would live forever, but there's one priest I made an oath about. All the way back in Psalm 110, which is what he's quoting in verse 21, all the way back in Psalm 110, I promised that there was going to be a priest who would one day come and live forever, who would one day come and reconcile you to God, who would one day come and be for you what you cannot be for yourself. And I want you to see, Jesus is saying, I want you to see that Jesus Christ, the Lord, He is my, the Father is saying, He is my guarantee that I'm going to keep my promise. Now, I know that's lost on you, but when you see the word guarantor in verse 22, that word, it means like a surety or a security. For example, when I was a teenager and I got my first credit card, I couldn't just get a credit card. I had to have my father come and be on the account. He was a guarantee that if I didn't pay the debts, he would pay the debts. Now, I can assure you, I, he got off as a guarantor about as soon as he possibly could. 
But Jesus, he has come as our guarantor. He has come and paid the debt you could not pay. He is a living proof that God is going to keep his promise. Let me just say it like this. Jesus Christ is God's great guarantee to you that you will one day be saved. Just look to him. And this is the point. This sounds like, well, of course. What are you trying to tell me? This is my word about as one-on-one as it gets. For you here that struggle with assurance, for you here that battle sin, consequently you just can't help but wrestle with the fact, maybe I'm not real. Am I real? That was my sermon a few weeks ago. Am I real? Is, could I be possibly real? How do I know that I know that I know I'm saved? Hebrews is basically saying, stop looking within. Stop looking up. Just look to Jesus. Just start looking at him. I want you to see Jesus is your guarantee. He is God's great guarantee to you. He has promised you what nobody can. He promises you in this book that He will save you. He did this at conversion. By the way, when you looked at Jesus in the past, He saved you. Just look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other, Isaiah tells us. He tells us to look to Him this day. If you want assurance of your salvation, just look to Jesus and He alone can give you the assurance you need. Don't look at your life. Look to your Lord and say, I believe, O God, help my unbelief. And one day we're going to look to Him when we stand before Him in judgment. I'm going to stand before my judge and I am not going to hold out my hands and say, Lord, look at what I've done. I will with knees knocking look at my Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm looking to you. My only hope this moment before a holy God is that you stand between me and this God and praise be to him Jesus will do just that he will make you and I stand blameless before his presence one day with great joy oh take heart one of the reasons you and I need Jesus is because firstly nobody promises what he can but secondly I want you to notice not only can he promise what none can I want you to secondly see that he provides what none can. Look, if you will, at verse 23. In verse 23, he says, the former priests, well, they were many. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died, so you couldn't really trust them because they weren't going to stick around. But Jesus is unlike all those other priests. He has lived forever, and he continues forever. In other words, Stop putting your hope, the writer of Hebrews is saying, in things that won't last, in false promises that will not hold. And by the way, just anecdotally as a pastor, I guess just as a person, there's nothing that distresses me, disturbs me, depresses me more than watching people I know and love, members of this church, members of my own family, buy a lie, set their hope in things that won't deliver. Follow a promise that won't fulfill. Time and again have I watched a teenager exchange the truth of the gospel for some so-called gospel of LGBT sexual identity and freedom. How many times have I witnessed as a pastor somebody exchange the truth of the gospel in college for the lies of some new prevailing philosophy that some PhD is spouting? Oh, how many times have I as a pastor 
counseled young professionals, watching them who have been following after Christ, who have been sacrificing for the sake of His name, all of a sudden get the taste for materialism. And before you know it, their 20s are dedicated to expanding their bank account with little to no reference to God. Perhaps more than any other, how many couples have I had in my office over the last 15 years I've been a pastor where I have seen couples who seem to be walking arm in arm with the Lord decide after several years of marriage they're bored with one another and think divorce is the fresh start they're looking for. Oh, see this day that where you may be placing your hope is not going to hold. That only Jesus can provide what you're looking for. My plea is that you would hang all your hope this day on Him. I want to show you three reasons why, three ways uh, that you ought to hang all your hope on the Lord Jesus. Three things He alone can provide for you. First off, notice that His hope is a permanent hope. Because He says that Jesus is the priest that is permanent. He continues Forever. That word permanently means unchanging, unshakable. In essence, it means this. Jesus is never going to change. All the old priests of the Old Testament did. There were 18 high priests in the first temple. They all died. There were 60 high priests in the second temple. They all died. There has been but one high priest who has resided in the temple of your heart, and he, my friends, shall never change. His is a permanent hope. So, just consider the implication. That means I am bound, Clint is bound, this church is bound to never, ever, ever change its message. We cannot adapt our gospel to the winds and directions of the day. We cannot, indeed we should not, Ours is a permanent hope. And for you, this means you're never going to outgrow this gospel. You need it. This gospel is not 101 that you no longer need. Some of you are like, Tyler, I'm done with the gospel. I'm ready for some meat. If you eat meat without the water of the gospel, you will choke on it. So as you are carving up your meat, as you are digging into God's word, as you are learning, oh, drink deeply of the refreshing water of the gospel of Jesus. For it is a permanent message. Ours in Christ is a permanent hope. Notice also, his hope is not just permanent, it is perfect. For notice in verse 25, he says, by the way, I think verse 25 is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. You could call this the gospel in a nutshell, the gospel in a verse. For in verse 25, he says, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The uttermost. It means that Jesus is able to save you completely, in a way no man, woman, or child can. He alone can save you fully. Now I want you to just consider with me anew what it means for Jesus to save you fully, completely, to the uttermost. It means He has saved you, my friends, from all of your past guilt. Past tense. He has saved you from everything you've done. He has wiped your slate clean. It also means He has saved you from your present power of sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. Your struggles with same-sex attraction, your struggles with alcoholism, your struggles with a wandering eye, your struggles with a doubting heart, they are not your taskmaster. Christ has redeemed you from this slavery. You have been freed from the present power of sin. Past guilt, 
present power. And praise be to God, He has also redeemed you. He has also saved you to the uttermost. He has saved you from the future penalty of sin. It means this, that Jesus is going to finish what He started in you. He who began a good work in you, praise be to Him, is going to bring it to completion. So, you ought to hang all your hope on Him. you got to hope in Him this day, my friends. You need to trust that He is your perfect hope. Only He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Jesus. Hope in Him this day. Only through Jesus can you approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Only to Jesus can you be saved to the uttermost. He has for us a permanent hope, a perfect hope, And thanks be to God, the last half of verse 25 tells us that it is a present hope. We often talk about salvation in the past tense, do we not? The gospel is often conveyed as what happened to us in the past. But notice what is going on in verse 25 at the end of it. Did you know Jesus is doing something this moment for you? Verse 25, since Jesus always lives, that's present tense, He lives to make intercession for you. He who died lives for you. He who paid for you prays for you. Have you ever considered that Jesus is praying for you this moment? This is not isolated to Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Just mark in your margin 1 John 1, 21, which tells us that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He is as if it's our lawyer before the judge of the universe. Or mark in your margin Romans 8 and verse 34, where it tells us that Jesus is interceding for us. He is praying on our behalf. That's why I love the song, Before the Throne of God Above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives interceding for me. Oh, my friends, God in Christ is praying for you, interceding for you by name this moment, which is why the gospel ought never get old to you. Oh, we have good news for if we confess our sins we can take heart that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because He is interceding, praying for, advocating for you this moment. Ours is a present hope, a perfect hope, a permanent hope. Oh, we need Jesus because He alone can provide us what we need. But in conclusion, there is one third and final truth I intend to lay upon your heart this day. For in verses 26 and following, I want you to see thirdly and finally that we need Jesus because He pardons like no other. Only He can pardon you. The whole story of the Scripture is the story of pardon, the story of forgiveness, the story of salvation. And all the Bible, indeed all of history, is basically one big tale of people looking for salvation within through works of the flesh, trying to earn their way to God. Or even in the Bible, 
You see a lot of people looking around for salvation. If I just sacrifice this lamb, if I just obey this law this way, if I just follow all these rules, then I will be able to get my way to God. And Jesus comes and He crushes, He upends all of the insanity of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And He says all of this law existed for one reason, to get you to look up and start seeing that I am your only hope. It is not works of the flesh that save you. It is not works of the law that saves you. It is the works of Jesus, of Christ our Lord, that alone can save you. Which is why he says, beginning in verse 26, he says, it was indeed fitting that we get Jesus. It was altogether right and appropriate that Jesus come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I want you to see three reasons in conclusion why it was fitting that we get Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Firstly, because he lived unlike anybody else. He lived like no other. Just look at all the words that describe him in verse 26. It says he was holy. That means he was without sin, perfectly righteous. It says he was innocent. That means Jesus was harmless. He never did anything wrong to anybody. Just conceive of somebody like that. It says he was unstained. That means Jesus was undefiled. He was free from any blemish. He never did anything wrong. It says he was separated from sinners. That means that Jesus was in a league of his own, in a class of his own. He was totally different from the rest of us. Consequently, he is exalted. He is the name above all names. He has ascended before God. And consequently, he has no need to make a sacrifice for himself because he never sinned. He doesn't have anything to atone for. So just think about this. You guys who know your Bible, did the first high priest Aaron look anything like that? What about the high priest Eli? that the student ministry just learned about today? What about the high priest Zadok or Annas or that infamous high priest Caiaphas who was instrumental in crucifying our Lord? Can you imagine the glory and wonder of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who lived like no other? But verse 27 makes clear, secondly, he died like no other. Just consider the matchless ministry of our great high priest who made his sacrifice, verse 27 says, once for all when he offered up himself. I want to take you back to the temple court and imagine what happened on Calvary's cross. Jesus, our great high priest, stepped into his temple. It was not the temple mount. It was just outside the temple walls. His temple was the Mount of Calvary, Golgotha. And instead of an altar, his altar was a cross. And there his sacrifice, a spotless lamb, unblemished, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This lamb was slain on the altar of this cross. And then something unprecedented, unparalleled, unimaginable happened, demonstrating that what just happened on Calvary's cross was different than the millions of lambs slaughtered heretofore. For when Jesus' blood spilled, was drunk into the earth, a miracle occurred. Perhaps it's lost on you, but this miracle would have stunned all who observed it. 
the great abiding imagery that separated men from God, the veil of the temple, this great fabric woven to demonstrate that sinners cannot come into the presence of a holy God, the Bible tells us at that moment, as he cried out to Telestai, it is finished, that temple veil was split in two, demonstrating symbolically for all eternity that in that moment when Jesus' sacrifice was poured out on the altar of the cross, God had decided once for all. No more. It's done. It is finished. No more sacrifices needed. You don't need a priest anymore. The priesthood ended in truth that moment. For now, ours is a great high priest. A permanent one. Which you might be thinking, well, Kyler, I thought you just told me he died. How is our great high priest a permanent forever one if he died on Calvary's cross? Which brings us to verse 28. And may it be a punctuation mark to our hearts this Lord's day. For the end of that verse says, This son, this sacrifice, he was made perfect forever. Which means, symbolically, this Jesus, this sacrifice did not stay dead and buried, did he? He was mightily and triumphantly resurrected from the dead. It was God's decisive act demonstrating to a watching world that that sacrifice I accepted. I have deemed this one a perfect sacrifice once for all. He is now your great high priest. And my friends, this is good news for Christians. You do not need a pastor to stand between you and God. I am a mere man. I have merely been called to shepherd you. God hears my prayers like he hears yours. You don't need a priest. Don't go to your local Catholic church. Don't go to your Jewish temple. Don't go to a Hindu temple. Don't go look for somebody to stand between you and God. You have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for you. Yours is a great high priest who has made it possible for you to stand in the presence of a holy God. And so today, for those of you who this is new for you, I pray you hear one final time, your greatest problem this moment is not what you think. God has brought you to this church this day for you to hear that you need Him in a way you never realized. Your greatest problem this moment is God, which means your greatest need this moment is for somebody to come and do for you what you could never do for yourself. And you have that in Jesus Christ, who this Bible calls our great high priest. Oh, Hickory Grove, believers who have tasted and seen that God is good, would you join me as we sing in a moment and cry out with thankful hearts that our God is our great high priest. May I say it so simply that every child in this room can understand and may God seal it to your soul this day. Dear church, you need Jesus. Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord, we will come before His throne of grace this day with confidence that we need not fear His all-consuming holy fire. For we have an advocate, an intercessor, a great high priest in Jesus who lived like no other, died like no other, 
and lives like no other. We have one who has come and promised what no man can in this world. We have one who has come and provided a hope that no hope in this world can offer. We have one who has come and pardoned you, forgiven you, saved you like none can. Oh, would you join me in praying to our good, gracious God who is our greatest need. Father in heaven, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of your people. That for those who know that they have not been made right with you, who know that you are a great problem for them, who know that they need to be saved and aren't, I pray as we stand and sing in a moment that you would stir in their hearts and that they would come. For the vast crowd here today, I trust, would you stir in their hearts and mine a renewed thanksgiving to God that you have provided Jesus Christ, our Lord, our great high priest, our only hope. What a hope we have. Oh, would I and all of my dear friends this day hang all of our hope on you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? And as Gerald leads us in before the throne of God above, let's do so with grateful hearts that this throne is a throne of grace. Let's sing together.